Well, if you have your Bible, I'd be really glad for you to open that with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. If you brought your own Bible, then great. If you didn't, then there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back nearby. And in the book of Acts, uh, you'll find that on page 858, Acts 5. And the passage we're going to be in is actually going to spill over into 859. So 858 and 859 are the pages we'll be in that hardback black Bible. You might remember that when Luke records the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, Jesus was being crucified between two criminals. One of those criminals, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 23 of his gospel account, he tells us that one of those criminals was reviling or um, uh, blaspheming Jesus is really the word that's being used there. Speaking ill of the Lord Jesus as he was dying. The other criminal was rebuking the criminal who was reviling Jesus. And the other criminal on Jesus' side, he asked the one who was reviling Jesus, blaspheming him. He asked him the question, don't you fear God? Both of these criminals were about to die hanging beside Jesus. They both were about to face God. But only one of them was acting like it. The other one was not. I'd like to ask you the same question here this morning. Do you fear God? How would you know? How would you even be able to assess yourself? How would you know if somebody else feared God? If you were looking at the lives of others around you, how would the fear of God be manifest? Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage of scripture in chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 where the fear of God is on display as a matter of fact it seems to be a very good thing on display in this passage here this morning and it's mentioned twice once in the middle of the passage and once at the end of the one we're going to read I think that today's sermon is going to be a little bit weighty for some of us in the room we're going to consider some matters that we probably many of us don't like to, or at least probably don't think on very often. I pray that the Lord would give us grace and wisdom and that I pray that God would, as we think through this subject matter, that God would grant us a healthy fear of him, that we would indeed learn to fear him, to fear him more, not in the terrified God is scary kind of way, but in a reverence, in an honor, in a weightiness of God, that he would be the most weighty thing we know or think of. Well, I'm going to keep the introduction brief because we've got a lot to get to with our passage. Would you mind standing with me as I read the primary passage today? Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We stand during this primary reading as one way to show reverence for God's word. So thanks for standing with me. I'll read it aloud for us. But... A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up. And carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? The feet of the, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her 
beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. As I typically do, I will in today's sermon try to drive toward a main point, a main idea that I always intend to be drawn from the text. So the main point, I believe, of the passage that we're in this morning, uh, not a topic that I've thought of and then arrived at a text of the Bible that I think will help me support that topic or idea, but rather from Acts chapter 5 in its context, verses 1 through 11, I think this is what God would have us to understand in our context as, as, a, as an application. Is that the fear of God advances, fosters, produces, results in spiritual health, church unity, and Christian witness. The fear of God advances spiritual health, church unity, and Christian witness. The entirety of today's sermon will seek to uh, unpack that, show that, explain how I arrive at that main point from the passage. Uh, The order will be clear as we go along, but let's just dive straight into it with point number one. There'll be four points today. One will be a little longer, and that's going to be the one that's going to cause probably the most discomfort among the room. So just look forward to that one. It's coming. Point number one, though, is trouble from within. It wasn't long ago that we were in Acts chapter four, reading about how Peter and John were being arrested for preaching the gospel, or as Luke put it in Acts chapter four, verse two, for teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. After they'd spent a night in jail and after an intimidating appearance before a Jewish leadership council, Peter and John were released, but they were warned when they were released to speak no more in the name of Jesus. That's Acts fourteen seventeen. In fact, uh, Luke says the Jewish leaders charged them in verse 18 of chapter four, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This was the first of many threats from outside of the church. The early church, the early Christians, they faced incredible opposition on nearly every side. As a matter of fact, it seems to me the book of Acts is basically the story of the spread of the gospel and Christ's kingdom in the world in the face of near constant opposition from the world. Our passage this morning, which follows right on the heels of a church-wide prayer meeting. That's at the end of Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 30 is that prayer. So our passage then tells us yet another story of opposition to the gospel expansion. Only this time, the hostility is from within the church. And it's subtle. It's not overt threats. But it is a clear assault nonetheless. We'll talk more about this in just a bit with that uncomfortable point number three. But we learn here that it's not just worldly leaders and kingdoms who are at war with Christ and with his people. It's not just, as uh, Acts chapter 4 puts it in verses 25 to 26, it's not just the Gentiles or nations who rage and plot against the Lord's anointed, uh, God and his anointed, God and his Christ. The Bible teaches us that there is a real devil and that he and his demons are committed to an all-out war against the triune God and against anyone who claims allegiance to Jesus Christ in the world. And the devil didn't give up after the outside hostilities failed to stop the church's forward progress after the day of Pentecost. Instead, we're told in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, an incredibly interesting phrase is used, and we're told that the devil filled the heart of a church member and aimed at division and hypocrisy among the church. Now, considering our passage in this context is illuminating. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is a contrast with the section that came just before it. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Which combined with Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, so Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11, is really, I think, an expansion of the brief summary that we read at the end of Acts chapter 2. So hold your place there in Acts 5 and look at the very end of Acts chapter 2 with me and see that in verses 42 to 47, Luke told us that the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Then the next portion of the book of Acts is the recording of the threats we talked about just a moment before. And after those threats and the unpacking of that experience that Peter and John had had and the way that the the church had prayed for boldness and faithfulness, Well, then Luke returns, he revisits these same themes of unity, love, and generosity at the end of chapter 4. So look now with me at the end of chapter 4. We'll start in verse 32. And listen even to how he repeats some of those same phrases and words that we just read at the end of chapter 2. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were together. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Again, a repeated phrase. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. Again, a repeated phrase. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Repetition. As for as many for as many as were uh, were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Repetition again. And verse 35, they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Another repetition. Verse 36, here's the clincher. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that's where Acts chapter 5 picks up. That's where our story begins. But... Ah, here's a contrast. Joseph, Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias, verse 1 of our passage today, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Well, why did they sell a piece of property? Well, because other Christians were showing love and generosity by selling their stuff and giving it away to needy church members. But unlike Joseph or Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira were masquerading as loving and generous church members. They were really acting out of selfish ambition that was only dressed up as selfless generosity. They wanted Barnabas and the apostles and other, uh, their fellow church members to think that they were being lovingly generous. And to a certain point, to a certain extent, they were actually being generous. But they were also secretly trying to make their generosity seem more generous by lying about the amount, which in the end really proves to be something of a parable for us, showing that generosity has nothing to do with the amount and that nothing really is ever actually secret. It's important to note here, even early in today's sermon, that there is a temptation that we all face to try to make ourselves look better than we actually are. Even claiming the name Christian is a way that people may try to appear good or virtuous. And if this was true in first century Jerusalem, where Gentiles scoffed or ridiculed Christians and Jews cursed and threatened them, then it is definitely true in our culture today. I've said it many times, but uh, I've lived in East Texas for uh, just over seven years now. And I still can only remember ever meeting one person so far who's been consciously aware that he wasn't a Christian. He said, no, I'm actually an atheist. His name is Royce. I remember where I met him and how the conversation went from there because he's the only guy I've ever met that was consciously not a Christian in East Texas. Now, I'm sure there are many non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, people of other religions in East Texas. But most of the people that you and I know are going to at least think that they are Christians. But friends, claiming to be a Christian or claiming to believe in Jesus even or even doing doing good stuff in the name of Christ doesn't magically make anybody a Christian. Point number two, the absence of godly fear. So the first point was this opposition arising from within the church and the contrast between Barnabas and Ananias. Let's see how Ananias and Sapphira 
are exemplary of what it looks like when fear of God is gone. They had these, these two people, these characters we meet in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They had uh, seemingly good characteristics, many of them, that might have made them appear to be wonderful church members. This was a married couple with no suggestion that there was infidelity there. No mention that they dishonored marriage or they acted in some unchristian way, specifically other than the one that's pointed out. They did have some material wealth, at least enough that they could sell a piece of their property, we learn in verse 1, and still have enough left over to live on. So they were seemingly good, some marks of potential goodness and maybe more that could be implied in all of that. They also seemed to have some concern for their fellow church members in need. And why else would they sell any of their property? To give away any of the proceeds. Look at Acts chapter 5 verse 4. Peter asks Ananias, while it, the property, remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So there was no, there was no compelling reason that Ananias and Sapphira should sell any of their property. But why should they do that? And then Peter said, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Couldn't you, couldn't you do whatever you wanted with the proceeds? Well, of course, yes, is the implication. The land is yours, Ananias. You know, what, why, why did you sell it in the first place? And you could do whatever you wanted with the proceeds you got from the sale of this property. No one was telling you that you had to give any certain amount to the church. On a quick sidebar, I just can't pass up an opportunity, a pastoral opportunity to apply what is the implicit, just underneath the surface, teaching here of Christian freedom and giving. This passage has no command to give a set percentage. And Peter even seems to say that Ananias and Sapphira weren't obligated to give any of the profits of the sale to the church. Scripture clearly teaches that Christians should give. We should give in order to, to honor and to support the ministry of the word. That's 1 Timothy five seventeen. 1 Timothy 5, 17, a clear uh, command in Scripture for us to, to give, to financially support and honor the ministry of the Word. And we're clearly taught that we should contribute toward the work of Christ's mission in the world to make disciples both here and beyond. So 3 John, uh, 3 John just says the one chapter, verses 5 to 8, and Matthew 28, 8 to 20, 18 to 20. Think about those in, in their context. But the New Testament never tells us how much we should give. My recommendation would be that you look regularly at what you have, you think about, consider, and then reconsider what you actually need, and then think about how you might use any of the surplus that you have left over to enjoy God's good provision, and then to invest in the things that God values in this world. We should seek to spend our time, our treasure, and our talent as though this world and all of its treasures will soon be gone. One day we will be in glory and we will know just how inflated the dollars of this world actually were. May God help me and, and all of us to go ahead and exchange the dollars, the currency of this world for the currency that God truly values. Now back to the heart of our passage. Ananias and Sapphira, they seem to look like good church members, I think, but it is clear that, that Luke intends to tell us that they were not. They were actually opening the door, and this is the clincher here. This is the do they were opening a door to satanic disunity and wickedness among the church. And all because they did not have a healthy fear of God. I want to point to what I think are three ways that this passage shows us what can happen in the absence of godly fear. One, it leads to, sin, to a sinful fear of man. Two, it leads to sinful disobedience. And three, it leads to disunity among the church. So first, the sinful fear of man. What happens when godly fear is absent or diminished? What happens when we don't fear God as we should? Brothers and sisters, we all are going to fear or revere or honor or respect someone or something. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the apostles and the other Christians to give them kudos and that's why they lied about how much they were giving in the church offering. They didn't fear God enough not to lie or cheat, but they feared their peers enough to cook up this deceptive, deceptive plan to stimulate an attaboy from their friends. 
Second, in the absence of godly fear, there is a propensity to ignore God's commands and to step right over the clear lines that God has drawn out for us. So Peter told Ananias that he'd lied not just to man, but to God. Acts chapter 5, verse 4. And to Sapphira in verse 9, Peter said, You have agreed together, that is with your husband, to test or to tempt the spirit of the Lord. The idea of testing here or tempting is that of examination. The idea is, what Peter was telling them was, is that what they were doing was a sort of experiment to see who God is is really. What's he really like? Is God actually serious about sin? Does he really condemn sin and judge sinners? Well, you bet he does. But sometimes when we don't fear God, we have trouble believing that that's true. Third, the absence of godly fear leads to true, though not always easily apparent, but true and horrific disunity among the church. It wasn't apparently noticeable to anyone besides Peter in Acts chapter 5. But Peter said to Ananias that his sin was nothing less than a satanic ploy. Peter accused Ananias of taking Satan's side over and against the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Lord, verse 9, and God himself, verse 4. And that's such a big deal, I'm going to make it point number three. Point number three, beware of Satan's schemes. I'd like to ask you for a moment, especially those who are members of this church family, what unites us above all else as a church? What's the, what's the, the motive or the impetus or the, the rationale? What's the basis of our unity as a church family? There are certain, certainly many things that we are united on. We have unity in our shared doctrine. We believe the gospel. We believe the God of the Bible. We believe the Bible is the very word of God. We are united in our, in our shared love for Christ and our love for one another. But all of this unity and much more is only real and lasting if it is created and sustained by God himself. It's not something that any of us can manufacture. We can only pretend for so long. Only the regenerating work of God's spirit can make us believe what is right and make us love as we should. Therefore, it is my assertion, my argument this morning. That it is the spirit of God who unites us as a local church above all else. Let me pull some other Bible verses in to make uh, to, to provide some evidence for thinking such a thing. In first Corinthians chapter 12, first Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to look this up later or maybe if you've got fast fingers, you can go there with me now. But first Corinthians chapter 12, there's an example there of where the Bible says in verse three that no one can say that Jesus is Lord. That is make the good Christian confession except in the Holy Spirit. That is, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't enable them to do such a thing. Then there in verses 4 to 6, it also says that there are a variety of gifts among the church's membership, but the same Spirit who divinely empowers them all in everyone. So God's Spirit is the one that is, is uniting and empowering the church body together, though passing out different gifts as, as he sees fit. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, We read, just as the body, the human body, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. How is it that Christians are one body in Christ? Well, he says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So it is the spirit of God who makes a church united who makes a a visible body of Christ united. This is spiritual unity that's being talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But this spiritual unity, which is indeed shared by all Christians everywhere, is made visible as bodies or assemblies, local churches, of real Christians physically gathered together. That's where this unity is on display. So we can talk about Christian unity, but where do you see it? Well, you see it in the assembly of the saints. You see it in the gathering of Christians as a body of believers united by God's spirit. And it is it's a unity that's only sustainable insofar as those assemblies or churches are comprised or made up of members 
who are actually indwelt by God's spirit. So the unity isn't just that we're physically in the same place at the same time. That's how unity is visible. But how is it real? How is it lasting? Well, it's by God's spirit making that unity possible. And this is why Peter's question, I think, to Ananias in verse 3 is so horrifying and also so important for us to understand today. Look at verse 3 with me. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Brothers and sisters, this is not a passage about giving. This is a passage about spiritual warfare. Up until now in the book of Acts, the only spiritual filling that we've heard about is the kind that the Holy Spirit does to believers. So Acts chapter 2 verse 4, chapter 4 verse 8, chapter 4 verse 31, each speak of the filling of the Holy Spirit. But here, Peter uses the same word, but it's a different spirit. Peter said that Ananias was filled with Satan. Now, friends, we might like to imagine that there is such a thing as a neutral in the cosmic spiritual war, but there is not. We are either on God's team or we are his enemy. Now, the good news is, is that God graciously and powerfully welcomes his enemies to have a seat at his royal family table. But he only does this through the sacrificial work of Christ and by the effective power of his Holy Spirit. Like Ananias before us, when we sin, we are showing evidence of a wicked heart that is home to demonic desires and anti-God sentiment. That is what is natural to what theologians and Bible students call the fall, which is what happened when Adam sinned. In fact, the Bible paints an ugly picture of human nature after the fall. Romans 3, for example, verses 11 to 18 Give a summary of human nature in its fallen state. There, I'll just pick out some of the things that are said. The Bible teaches us that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Think of that in context of what we're talking about today. Ephesians 2 says that all mankind, apart from the gift of faith in Christ, is dead in trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, even following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's spiritual warfare. And that certainly isn't speaking of the spirit of God. Now, praise God that he doesn't leave us in such a helpless and miserable estate. The Bible speaks of a total renovation of our hearts and minds when God saves us by his gracious grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, for example. Or how about Titus chapter 3, where it says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, spiritual birth, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ. Friends, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not just a decision that somebody made on some point or a church membership card. You can't become a Christian by reciting the sinner's prayer or by asking somebody to baptize you. No, Christian conversion is a miraculous work of God's spirit, which only God can do and which only becomes evident over time as a Christian lives in keeping with that profession of faith. That's what conversion is. It's not something that you can immediately see. It's something you can only see evidence of over time. It's something that immediately happens spiritually and miraculously. But we can only see it over time. Now, this story that we're reading about in Acts chapter 5, it reminds us that there is a real spiritual battle going on in the world. And it reminds us that the church is not merely a gathering of good people or loving people or generous people. If we are a church at all, We are a gathering of Holy Spirit filled people who have been regenerated, born again, brought to spiritual life by the spirit of God. Therefore, deception and selfish ambition are not just bad or unpleasant. 
These are devilish characteristics, evidence of satanic work among the local church and an assault on the heart of our spiritual health, our congregational unity, and our, our Christian witness in the world. This is especially true of deception and pride, but it is generally true of all unrepentant sin. Brothers and sisters, we should beware of Satan's schemes, which he and the rest of his wicked angels constantly employ in attempts to kill, to steal, and to destroy what is good and true in this world. Thomas Brooks was a 17th century Puritan pastor, and he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. In it, he listed 12 of Satan's devices or schemes, schemes the devil uses to draw Christians to sin. He also listed, Thomas Brooks, uh, many remedies which the Christian could apply to counter Satan's devices, many remedies under each one of these devices. On a side note, I think Thomas Brooks's book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, is far better than a book that some people might think is similar, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which kind of talks about the speculation of what it looks like for the demonic realm to attack uh, uh, people and Christians, especially in the world. I think Brooks is better on this subject because Brooks doesn't speculate about demonic relationships or activity in the world. And he actually gives the Christian, the reader, some really helpful things to do. Uh, so I encourage you, if, if you like Screwtape Letters, get Brooks and read that. If you haven't yet re- read Screwtape Letters, read Brooks instead. I highly recommend Precious Remedies. In fact, I can tell you about a place you can get a free copy if you like. As I said, though, Brooks highlights 12 of Satan's devices. I'll only name off four of them uh, while we're on the subject today. So one, these are Satan's schemes, his ploys to try to make sin look more appealing to Christians. One, Satan draws or tempts us to sin by showing the bait and by hiding the hook. We often are able to see the allure of sin, but we forget that there's death in every bite. Friends, sin may taste good for the moment, but it goes down badly and it will kill us. And that's why it's vitally important that we remember the bitterness so that when we're tempted toward the sweet, we can avoid it. Two, Satan tempts us by painting sin with virtue's colors, Brooks said. He put it like this. He said, Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And therefore he, the devil, presents it unto us, not in its own proper colors, but painted and gilded over with the name and show of virtue that we may more easily be overcome by it and take the more pleasure in the committing of it. So, says Mr. Brooks, pride is dressed up as neatness and cleanliness. Drunkenness pretends to be good fellowship. And the same could be said of anger, dressed up as righteous indignation, or laziness pretending to be self-care or leisure. You just need to take time for yourself. And gossip could be clothed in neighborly concern. I just want to know how I can care well for you. Friends, don't forget how strongly we are inclined to dress our sin in the clothes of virtue. When a Christian brother or sister challenges us, exposes some sinful area in our lives, or even just suspects, hey, I wonder if this is sin. We should always suspect ourselves. Third, Satan tempts us to sin by lessening our view of the seriousness of it. Brooks said, ah, Satan says, it is but a little pride, only a little worldliness, Only a little impurity. But there is no such thing as a little sin. No doubt there are some sins that are more heinous than others. That cause more horrible effects in our lives or in the lives of others. But all sins, every sin, even the little ones, are rebellion against God. Sin is cosmic treason against the divine king of glory. Additionally, it's good for us to remember... That God names the bad stuff sin because it's bad. It's bad for us. I'll only do one more so we don't all crumble where we sit today under the weight of our horrific guilt. Fourth, Satan tempts us by encouraging us to think of God as made up of all mercy. 
And this must have been at least a little in the minds of Ananias and Sapphira in our passage. Thomas Brooks wrote it like this. Oh, Satan says, you need not make such a matter of sin. You need not be so fearful of sin, not so unwilling to sin. For God is a God of mercy, a God full of mercy, a God that delights in mercy, a God that is ready to show mercy, a God that is never weary of showing mercy, a God more prone to pardon his people than to punish his people. And therefore he will not bring judgment against the soul. And why then, says the devil, should you make such a matter of sin? We all, I think, are tempted to think of God as either all mercy or all justice. And probably at different times in the day, both of these things. When we think of God as all justice, we will, when we sin, run away from him and we will hide our sin. We will build entire fortresses around our sinful indulgences so that no one else will see them and maybe God won't know about them. But when we think of God as all mercy and no justice, well, then we are prone to presume upon his mercy and his grace. We will not fear God and we will think less and less about just how gracious his mercy actually is. And this leads us back to what I think is the heart of Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. This passage is all about the good fear of God, which inevitably leads to holiness, which is essential to the health, unity, and witness of God's new covenant people. It's no small matter that Luke first uses the word church in Acts chapter 5 verse 11. So this is the very first time in the early church that the church is called church by anyone except for Jesus when he uses the term. And it's in Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And it's in the context of contrasting those who were of one heart and soul together and those who were not, even though they were pretending to be for a little while. Now let's turn to consider how God dealt with sin in the earliest local church and how this ought to have implications for us today. Point number four, God's righteous judgment. Number three, I think, was maybe going to be the most uncomfortable one because it really kind of presses down into where spiritually we are today and how we should press in toward a fear of God. But I think number four is probably also going to be something uh, to think weightily about today. So think on it a little bit with me. In the first century church of Jerusalem, Peter and the rest of the apostles were acting as pastors or elders, but they were far more than that. In our passage, Peter spoke not merely with pastoral authority, but with the apostolic kind. So Peter heard Ananias and Sapphira's lies, and he supernaturally knew they were lies. That's apostolic. Additionally, Peter called down God's immediate judgment on them. Again, apostolic. These are unique apostolic acts not to be expected or repeated in our own day. And the book of Acts is full of such events from apostolic signs like healing and prophecy to the unique expansion of the gospel across ethnic lines and how we see the coming of the Holy Spirit evident in, in kind of different consecutive orders. Acts tells us what did happen, but not necessarily what always should happen. Now, that doesn't mean that the events of Acts have no modern day application. They, in fact, do. But what it does mean is that we need to understand the universal principles that agree with what the rest of the Bible teaches about these things and not just expect in our own day a continuation of the book of Acts. That's why there are 22 other New Testament books that follow the book of Acts, most of which are written to churches or to pastors about how to apply biblical principles in the context of the individual Christian and primarily the church life. So what principles or truths do we find in Acts chapter 5? And what does the New Testament teach us about how to apply these principles in the local church today? That's the question. Those are the questions we need to ask. What well, seems, number one, the principle that's most apparent to me in Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 is that God expects his new covenant people to fear him and to be holy and distinct from the world just the same as God expected as much from his old covenant people. So here in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, God expects holiness among his people. His people, his new covenant people, should fear him as God, as king, as master. 
This, it seems, was clearly Luke's intention by setting the contrast between Barnabas, a good example of Christian love and generosity at the end of Acts chapter 4, and Ananias and Sapphira, a bad example of selfish ambition and deception at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Luke also emphasized the connection of what happened to sinning church members with the resulting fear of God, which came upon all who heard of it. So what was it that produced fear of God? It was God's judgment among the church. And that's what produced the fear of God, both among the church and to all who heard of it. If I'm right, that the main point here is the goodness of fearing God and the necessity of holiness among the church, well, then we should search the New Testament for clear instructions about how to encourage and to foster and to cultivate the good fear of God and how to strive for holiness among a local church family. Now, brothers and sisters, there are many passages of Scripture underneath what I'm about to say, and I've tried to list some of them, the citations on the board behind me. Uh, feel free to write these down. I encourage you to read them through on your own time. Uh, read them through uh, all together so you can see the consistency and harmony of how the Bible speaks of these. But the fact of the matter is that the New Testament instructs so clearly on the necessity of holiness and discipline among the local church that the Protestant reformers noted that church discipline, to use the old term, is a third mark of a true church. So drawing from the scriptures and from Christians before them, the reformers said that a true church, that is a church of Jesus Christ, a church that's actually a Christian church, not just an organization, uh, not just a, a community group, uh, not just a, another religion, but actually a Christian church. To be a true church, it had to be, one, a church that preaches the true gospel. Two, one that rightly practices the biblical ordinances or, or sacraments, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They, they rightly administer these things. And then three, they fearfully exercise church discipline. Some have kind of pulled number three into number two. I think that probably is right. But these three, nonetheless, were marks of what a true church is, according to the reformers. Uh, but again, drawing on the scriptures themselves and other Christians. So, for example, such language comes from passages like Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, where Jesus says, If your brother, think Christian fellow church member, sins against you, go and tell him his fault. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him, the unrepentant sinner who calls himself Christian, be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Now, in the language of the New Testament, this is simply the idea of being someone who's outside of the covenant fellowship. So one who is no longer a Christian brother, the one who continues an unrepentant sin, though he's been approached multiple times in various ways, calling him to repentance. If he remains hard-heartedly unrepentant in obvious public sin, he is to be treated as one who is no longer a Christian brother because he's acting like one who is not a Christian. Another passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. There, the Apostle Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth for not dealing with sin among their church members. And he tells them, you are arrogant. He told them they're arrogant because like Ananias and Sapphira, they were presuming upon God's grace. Look at how gracious God is, that even Christians can live in open and unrepentant sin. And Paul says that is foolishness. That's prideful arrogance on your part. Instead, he says, ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this, this sin, be removed from among you. And in this way, the Apostle Paul is merely bringing forward the application of what Jesus already taught in Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5, continuing on with that passage, verse 4. When you are assembled, so now here's the New Testament teaching about what to do. In the same way that Jesus taught in Matthew 18 what to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, in other words, during the next Lord's Day gathering, with the power of our Lord Jesus among the church family, verse 5, you are to deliver this man, this unrepentant sinner, over to Satan. That is, put him out from among the, the covering of 
the community fellowship of the believers. Verse 11, he says, I'm writing to you not to associate. That is, don't take into membership. Don't keep in membership. Don't count one as among the Christian fellowship with anyone who bears the name of brother, think Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So he's saying, look, I'm not saying don't hang out with people who do this kind of stuff because people like people that do this kind of stuff are everywhere in the world. He's saying, but it's those inside the church whom you are to judge. So those who call themselves Christian brother or sister and live like someone who's a worldling, well, you're not to call them brother or sister anymore. You're meant to say, hey, this is, this is worldly behavior. This isn't Christian behavior. And then verse 13, Acts chapter 5, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I want to say, brothers and sisters, if you think that calling a fellow Christian out in their sin is harsh or unloving. Remember what it is that we are to fear. Ultimately, I don't fear your judgment of my sin. Because if you see me sinning, you're right to call it out. I'm a sinful guy. You're not wrong. It's true. And I want to be constantly repenting, turning from sin, striving toward holiness. And we all should be doing that very same thing. If you leave me in my sin and I don't turn from my sin, you leave me not under your judgment, but God's judgment. And that's what it means to fear God. It's to recognize that there's coming a day when we're all going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for who we are and for how we've lived. And so we act with one another in such a way that we're remembering that day's coming. So in Acts chapter 5, we see an example of these two church members who were, who were ambitiously trying to game the system of the earliest New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were boldly sinning. And they were even trying to gain the applause of their fellow church members through deceptively hiding their sin under the guise of loving generosity. Friends, this thing still happens today. In my experience, most of the time, it's not so bold and overt as Ananias and Sapphira's example. In my experience, it more often happens in people calling themselves Christians or even wanting to join a church, but wanting you to leave them utterly and completely alone about their private lives. Don't ask me about any of my private stuff. That stuff is private. People might even use it and use Christian language to say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what real religion is. But Jesus calls us out with such language and reminds us that we can't say. So first John tells us that we can't say we have love for God if we don't have love for our fellow Christians. Right. It is inherently both a horizontal and a vertical relationship. And so we can't just make believe. Now, I'm very glad for the broad reputation that this church has today for being a church that takes God seriously and takes sin seriously. I'm very glad that we're healthier today than in past times in my own experience with this church. I'm so glad for God's work among us. Only he could produce this unity. Remember what I said about the spirit being that which unites us as a church family. But friends, many of us remember that long night that we spent just last year, having to vote off hundreds of people who hadn't attended in years and had no intentions of doing so anytime soon. So friends, this is, this is something that's right here in our own laps. That's one example of ongoing, unrepentant, public, obvious sin that we as a church only recently have begun to deal with. When we deal with sin in this sort of a way, in the way that God has dealt with it, we don't speak with the immediate authority of God. We don't get to cast down divine judgment on anyone in the moment. But we speak in the name of God, in the name of Christ, nonetheless, as a local church. So the biblical principle that we're seeing here in Acts chapter 5 
is that God means, intends to be feared among his people. And he means, he intends for his people to live holy lives. The application of it in modern day churches, in New Testament churches, the application of it, as we've seen displayed in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 18 and the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 5, is that we, as a community of believers, as a church family, we commit to following Jesus together. And that commitment to one another in the form of what we call church membership, which Christians have called it for, for centuries now, we are saying to one another, I want to follow Jesus with you. You want to follow Jesus with me. And we're going to follow Jesus together. And if ever there comes a time when either of us, by word or deed, says, I'm not really into that anymore. Well, then we, we think about the seriousness of what it means to continue to call that person a brother or sister in Christ. And we think about the responsibility we have to lovingly call out sin where we see it in one another. Not so that we can be constantly legalistic sin inspectors in each other's lives but so that we can actually all be growing in holiness as we all grow to fear God together. And notice what happens in this passage. We'll get to it more as we continue to study through the book of Acts. But the response of the world outside is fear. And God, in that very way, adds to their number. It keeps people away at a distance, but it draws in those who are genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer today is that God would grant us grace where we have failed to live like this in the past. That he would forgive us for so often thinking little of his fear or the reverence that is due him. And that God would help us to be the God-fearing, holy, and peculiar church family that he intends us to be.